I'd ask that you'd turn now to chapter number one of Paul's epistle to the first to the Corinthians. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter number one. We continue our exposition tonight, picking up in verse number ten. Verse number ten. I want to bring a message tonight that will be part one of two on the imperative of church unity. The imperative of church unity. Beginning there in verse number 10, these are the words of God. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Nothing is more useless in the kingdom of God, or unproductive in the service of God, or unable to bring glory to God, than a church that doesn't possess unity. Nothing hinders a church from doing the work that Christ has given it, more than disunity within the membership. And today we we live in a culture that thrives on disagreement and debate. The news media exists to sow discord among the citizens, and the more contentious things become, the more we're interested in what's going on. The fact of the matter is, controversy is good for business. But sadly, many churches have adopted the world's mindset on the issue of division. And we've turned fractiousness and division into some kind of spiritual virtue. I'm sure you've unfortunately heard this kind of rhetoric from church members. Well, I'm more spiritual than you. Uh, Because I don't fellowship with that sinner over there that you fellowship with. Brother Dylan, you fellowship with with Bryce? I can't fellowship with that rascal. I must be more spiritual than you are. Well, you know what? This heinous sin of disunity and division and exclusion ought not be named among the people of God. If Jesus has received someone into His church as a member, why can't you? If Jesus is willing to fellowship with someone through the local assembly, why aren't you? Are you more spiritual than Jesus Christ? Within the context of a local assembly, it is positively prescribed in Scripture that every member of the church be in harmonious fellowship with every other member. And when this is not the case, if you are unable to fellowship with a particular member of whichever local assembly you belong to, there's two options 
If you're going to be obedient to the Word of God. Option number one is repentance and a restoration of fellowship. And option number two is leaving and finding a local assembly in which you can maintain unity. I don't believe the Apostle Paul is speaking of those necessary distinctions made between different denominations and churches. I understand that there are necessary divisions that must occur theologically. Obviously, we must be in doctrinal agreement and have doctrinal unity if we're going to successfully serve our Lord. But the thrust of this passage is the context of the local assembly. Paul is not speaking of all Christians in a general sense, but he's speaking of Christians that have covenanted themselves together in one church. And that's how serious of an issue this is. So many churches are hindered in their mission to serve Christ because they have members that have harbored resentment and bitterness toward each other for years and years. And this is not just a problem that's unique to our day, but it's one that has ever plagued the Lord's churches all the way back to the New Testament. Nothing is new under the sun. And this is why we find the Apostle Paul writing so much about pursuing and preserving and protecting unity. And the admonition of the Apostle Paul given here to the Corinthian church is universally relevant in every age. We need this text tonight. So there's three things I want you to see about these verses that I've read to you. The first is this. I want you to see the stated exhortation. The stated exhortation. In verse number 10, Paul says this, Now I beseech you. And with this phrase, Paul signifies that he has ended his introductory remarks. The last several weeks, we we preached a message there on Paul's prayer. And the week before, we preached the introduction to this epistle uh, as Paul introduced the letter. But Paul is now transitioning to the portion of the epistle where he will begin to deal with specific issues in the Corinthian church. And the very first problem Paul addresses is the fractious and sectarian attitudes of the church members. See, Paul knew that he must begin with this crucial subject because it is fundamental and foundational to the health of any and every church, especially a young church that has many other challenges to deal with as well. See, Corinth had some major major dilemmas. And Paul knew that there was no way that they would be able to overcome these obstacles if the members of the church could not achieve unity with one another. You see, once a church is divided and in disarray, it is so easy for Satan to enter in and to wreak havoc. But the gates of hell will never prevail against a church that is powerfully united under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul starts at square one. He begins at ground zero on this subject of unity. And if Corinth is going to solve all of their other problems, and if we are going to be able to 
handle whatever this world might throw at us and whatever our Lord tasks us with here at Christ Fellowship, we must first banish this hindrance of disunity. So Paul begins with this stated exhortation. He says, now I beseech you. And I want you to notice the manner of this exhortation. See, given the seriousness of disunity, uh, we wouldn't be surprised if Paul had invoked his apostolic authority and, and just commanded the Corinthians with apostolic authority to come together in one accord. But Paul, in understanding and in compassion, he took a different route. Instead of brashly commanding, he lovingly beseeches. You must understand this word beseech carries with it the idea of coming alongside and affectionately desiring to help. Paul had a compassionate spirit towards the Corinthians and he was troubled in his own heart when he saw the disunity in their midst. And so Paul, desiring them to be a healthy congregation, it's as if he comes and he puts his arm around them and he says, I see your problem and I'm here to help. He understood something about unity. Understand that true unity must be forged. It cannot be forced. See, Paul could have forced them to come together but only God could give them a peaceable and harmonious spirit. There can be union without unity. Just tie two cats together by the tail and throw them over a clothesline. You're going to have union, but you won't have unity. And the unity that the Holy Spirit gives is the kind that knits hearts and melts souls together and produces a love for the brethren. And Paul is beseeching them as brothers and sisters in Christ to seek this type of unity. He goes on to say, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, here we see the grounds for this exhortation. Paul begs the Corinthians to strive for unity, not for his sake, not for their own sakes, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. So in essence, we see that unity is a matter of whether we really love Christ and desire to please Him. And if we love Christ, we'll love His people. Again, this underscores the serious nature of church unity. This is a matter of whether or not we're really going to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And with this context in mind, we now see the exhortation itself. It is this, in verse 10, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. Paul first gives this exhortation in general terms, and then he expresses it negatively and positively. We see it in general terms. That ye all speak the same thing. 
Now, some more modern English versions of the Bible uh, give a more dynamic translation of this phrase, and they simply use the verb agree, that you all agree. And that's certainly not a wrong translation of Paul's exhortation, but here in our authorized version, we're provided a, a much more literal rendering of Paul's words, which I believe gives a greater explanation. What does it mean to agree? Well, it means to all speak the same thing. For an agreement, we're going to be saying the same things. And the essence of, of agreement, we see, is found in the way we express and articulate what we believe. That's what Paul's addressing here with the Corinthians. What are we supposed to speak the same things about? Certainly Paul is not telling them that they need to speak the same things about mundane and trifles of everyday life. But when Paul says, speak the same things, he's referring to those things which are of utmost importance. Churches must be united on matters of doctrine and matters of practice. Spiritual unity within a church only occurs when all of the members know the truth, understand the truth, and confess the truth. And this is not achieved by watering down what we believe so that it can fit on a 3x5 index card, but it's achieved by patience and long-suffering and teaching and practicing. What the Word of God prescribes. But mark it down, there can be no unity without doctrinal agreement. How can a church come together if they don't agree on important doctrines such as the doctrine of salvation or on the issue of baptism or on the authority of the Scriptures? These are pillars upon which the church rests. And if you start removing those pillars or if you start allowing cracks in those pillars, the whole church falls. Therefore, unity is not accomplished by compromise, but it's accomplished by humility and patience towards one another. Can I be very vulnerable this evening and ask you to be patient with me? Can I ask you to be long-suffering towards me? Can I tell you that I don't know all there is to know? Can I tell you that I'm still growing in my faith and learning the Scriptures as you are? And can I say that I'm going to be patient with you and long-suffering with you? And so when something is preached and you're thinking, I don't know about that, there's no need to feel excluded. There's no need to feel like there's disunity. Because we're building an ecclesia, a church, upon the principles of humility and patience, not brashness and arrogance and high-mindedness. That's what Paul is communicating here to the Corinthians. And when we have this attitude, this attitude that says, we all might not understand everything the Bible teaches, but we are committed to submitting ourselves to what the Bible teaches. There's some truth you don't know yet, but the test of whether or not you're really a Christian is when the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to you, do you submit yourself to it? 
Or do you buck at it? Well, if there's saved Christians here tonight that receive the truth, those who are bucking at the truth, there's going to be friction, there's going to be disunity. So Paul says, speak the same things, confess the same truths. We must all endeavor to know what is taught in the Word of God so that we can all speak the same things. That's the exhortation in general terms, but then Paul states it also in negative terms. He says, verse 10, that there be no divisions among you. This is the desired result of speaking the same thing. We strive for doctrinal and practical agreement, not so that we can become an echo chamber, not so that we can all just repeat one another mindlessly, but we want to speak the same things so that we can eliminate any division that so easily creeps into a local assembly. See, a church that is well taught and in agreement about the truth will have a much easier time maintaining unity than a church filled with members who are ignorant of the Scriptures. That's just the truth. When we all know what the book teaches and we submit ourselves to what the book teaches, we're going to have a lot more commonalities between us. And so again, we see that it isn't the Lord's will for a local assembly to be filled with 101 different doctrinal amalgamations. Rather, God would have His people united around the truth. And there's some things that as a church, we're not emphatic on. That I pray, as time goes on, and as the Lord convicts and convinces hearts, we'll become emphatic on those things. Because we'll come to receive the truth as a body. So that's the the exhortation in negative standards. But also, he gives it in positive terms as well. Look at it at the end of verse 10. That ye be perfectly joined together. This is a a positive command that Paul's giving. Something he wants us to do. That we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Being perfectly joined together is the final product of speaking the same thing. The underlying word behind this phrase, perfectly joined together, is a word that refers to repairing a fishing net that has been ripped or torn. That's how we find it in the original. And divisions in a church body, they're like large tears and holes in a fishing net. These tears render the net useless. It cannot perform its intended function. Until it is repaired. And when a church is divided, it is absolutely useless until those divisions are repaired and the members are perfectly joined together. When we see disunity, when we see division, we should treat it as the fisherman would treat a net. He depends on that net for his livelihood. If he catches no fish, he doesn't eat. And so when we see divisions in the church, we should see it as a life-threatening hole in the body and it should be our utmost priority to repair that hole. That's what Paul is trying to get across here in 1 Corinthians. And there's two specific areas where this joining together must take place. The first is 
in the same mind refers to thought and intellect and also in the same judgment. That is in our outward opinion and our outward decision and course of action. So Paul wants us to agree inwardly and outwardly. That's very important. A lot of churches think that they have achieved unity as long as we're all outwardly in agreement. But if we don't deal with those inward disagreements, they're going to fester and they're going to grow until one day there's an explosion. And so Paul says, no, I want you to be agreed in mind and in judgment. Inwardly and outwardly. So we see from this stated exhortation that Paul is very concerned with fostering a well-orbed harmony and symmetry among the Corinthians. And such unity is essential for the peace, comfort, and well-being of the church. For how can two, much less a whole church, walk together except they be Agreed. That's what the Bible says. That's the stated exhortation. I want you to see, secondly, the sin engaged in. The sin engaged in. In verse 11, Paul says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. It's a very interesting verse. What apparently transpired is that there is a member of the Corinthian church named Chloe. In the New Testament, this could have been a male, this could have been a female. And some members of her household, who were also members of the church, or his household, uh, apparently wrote a letter to Paul reporting these various divisions in the body. And Paul, in keeping with his direct and straightforward character, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't write an anonymous letter saying maybe you have division and so I'm writing to you just in case. No, he writes a letter and he names the sin by name, calls it out. He says, I know it's there and I'm writing to you to confront it. Paul was rather direct in his approach to the ministry, wasn't he? Paul received this letter from the household of Chloe while he was in Ephesus and he found this issue so problematic that he immediately wrote a response to deal with this issue. I want you to understand that these contentions, they're no small thing. Paul's not writing about mundane trifles. These are not minor disagreements. But the church at Corinth They could wallow in the mud with the best of them. This church really knew how to have a good church fight. And their sin of contention, it demanded a response from the Apostle Paul. That's the sin engaged in. Thirdly, I want you to see the specifics enumerated. The specifics enumerated. Look at it in verse 12. Paul says, now this I say, that every one of you saith. So we see two things here. Paul is pointing back to the exhortation to speak the same thing. Because he's saying that the contention is manifesting itself because all of you are saying things. Every one of you saith. 
And he's about to reveal that their problem was that they were in fact not obeying that exhortation, but they were all saying very different things. And the second thing we see from his condemnation is that everyone is guilty. Paul says, every one of you saith. No one is left out. (laughs) See, when a church is divided, no member has the right to kick back and say, not my problem. Uh, That's that's their problem over there. Uh, They're the ones divided. That's their issue. We don't have that right because we are all in this together. We are one body. And if your liver is failing, you're going to have problems with your heart. You're going to have problems with your kidneys. You're going to have problems with your lungs. Because the body lives or dies together. And all the members are responsible for mending the holes of contention and disunity. So what are these different things that they're saying? Well, we see in verse 12 that their contention manifested itself in the the patronizing of various religious leaders. For one reason or another, the members of the church had elevated one particular leader over another and then divided themselves into cliques based on who their favorite preacher was. Now, I want you to understand that it is natural and normal to have a special love for those the Lord has used in our Christian lives. I'm sure if I asked you right now to to think of someone, a a pastor or a relative or maybe a godly lady that that led you in the faith when you were a, a new Christian, I'm sure you could think of someone. And those affections are right and proper and they're good. But we must never let the love of a teacher or a preacher separate us from other believers. And that's what was going on at Corinth. They were allowing their their preconceived affections to divide them rather than bring them together. So let's look at these different groups. It's very interesting here. The first group was a group that said, I am of Paul. I am of Paul. There's a group that was dividing themselves from the rest of the church, and they said, we are the group that is of Paul, and you're not. What did they mean? Well, this group that was of Paul, it represents the charter members of the church. Remember that Paul was the one who planted the church. And besides the church in Ephesus, Paul spent more time in Corinth than anywhere else. And those converts obviously shared a very strong bond with one another. They were there from the very beginning. They represented the charter membership of the Corinthian church. And at the time of this letter, Paul had since left, and the original church members had a resentment to those members who joined the church after Paul's tenure as the pastor. Paul served as the first pastor of the church. This is an issue that happens far too often today. When we build ministries that center around a man and not around the Lord. When we exalt a preacher over the church and make a man bigger than the church itself, no man is bigger than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And my desire for you is that you would find yourself being led by the Holy Ghost to be committed to Christ fellowship as a church more so than you are committed to me as your pastor. It's my desire for you. And it is true that Paul did indeed deserve a measure of adoration and respect. He was the pastor that planted the church. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the man that first preached the gospel to the Corinthians. But the last thing Paul wanted was for the members to elevate him over the Lord's church. So Paul calls out this group that said, We are of Paul. Look at the second group. They were a group that said, And I of Apollos. Well, if you know your Bible, you're familiar with this man, Apollos. Apollos was brought to the church to follow Paul's ministry as the second pastor. He was the second pastor of the Corinthian church. And this group that claimed to be of Apollos represents the second generation of members. Now, Apollos was brought in and he served as a co-elder with Paul. But then Paul left and Apollos took the role of primary teacher and preacher. And this group, uh, they preferred Apollos because he was an exceptionally gifted orator. There's no question that Apollos was more skilled in public delivery than Paul. Paul was one who came in a meekness and lowness of speech. And Paul's delivery in the pulpit was anything but flashy. But this group that said, I am of Apollos. They were drawn to Apollos' captivating preaching. Oh, he was a pulpiteer of the pulpiteers. And perhaps they were even converted under the ministry of Apollos. So they had this due affection for Apollos. But the folly in this group is that they exalted style and delivery above truth and content. Their priorities were all out of order. See, the fact is, you're going to like some preachers more than others. And it's even true that some preachers are better than others. They have better homiletics. They they can string together words. They They have tone and inflection in their voice. And they can just draw you in and hold your attention captive. And that's a wonderful gift to have. And I believe that that preachers ought to strive to do well in the pulpit. But nothing will ever trump the content that is preached. I would rather have a man with, with stage fright with a a, a small, minimal vocabulary, who struggles to present himself, but who knows the Scriptures, than I would the greatest speaker in the world who's ignorant of the Word of God. And we must never separate ourselves from brethren that preach the truth simply because we don't like the manner in which they present it. Not everyone is going to enjoy my style of preaching. It's not a style that I have tried to give myself. This is just what the Lord has made me to be. But I pray that above that, my content would be biblical. The third group. There was a group in the Corinthian church that separated themselves and divided themselves and they said, we 
are of Cephas. I of Cephas, they say. Now, Cephas is the name of the apostle Peter in Aramaic. It's talking about the same person there. And just like Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And this group more than likely identified with Peter because they had some Jewish inclinations. Furthermore, though Peter never visited or never was a part of the Corinthian church, it's quite probable that he visited them as an itinerant preacher. Now, an itinerant preacher can be a great blessing to the local church. But let me let you in on a little secret about itinerant preachers. They can often hold sway with members simply because they're not with them all the time. As the saying goes, an expert is anyone with a briefcase that lives 25 miles away. And I remember in Bible college, we'd have these itinerants that would come in and preach conferences and preach meetings. And man, you thought this guy was Paul Jr. I mean, he was just a fantastic preacher. Of course, you only heard him once or twice a year. And he's bringing the best stuff he has when he comes. But you know what? You never see his faults. You never see his struggles. And it's very easy to forget that that itinerant preacher is made of the same stuff everybody else is. And at the end of the day, he's just a man. And he puts his britches on, just like I do, one leg at a time. Before planning Christ Fellowship, we started this work in January. And before we planted this church, I preached in over 10 states last year. Visited over 17. And you know, there's a lot of churches all across America that have much higher opinions of me than I, what I really am. They've heard me one time. But they never got to see my faults. They never got to see my infirmities. And so you all know the truth. <laughs> That's the danger of having a Peter that comes and visits the church on occasion. That's also the danger of dividing, with, uh, dividing by a preacher over an inclination such as an ethnic inclination or a cultural inclination that has nothing to do with the ministry of the Word of God. So Paul calls this group out. You're of Cephas. Don't be like that. But then the last group, and perhaps the most interesting, is this group at the end of verse 12 that said, and I of Christ. Hmm. Now this is the final group mentioned. But it's no better than the others. In fact, one could argue that this is the worst of the cliques. The sectarianism and the division, it doesn't go away with the mention of Christ. Rather, it intensifies. It's like these guys were saying, we are of Christ. Not so sure about you. <laughs> and they used the name of the one who died to unite mankind to himself as a means of division. We are of Christ. And essentially what they were saying which is why it's just so dastardly, is that they presumed themselves to be so spiritual that they were just above human leaders. What church are you a member of? Oh, I don't need no church. I'm a Christian. I go straight to 
Christ. Who's your pastor? Oh, I don't need an earthly pastor. Oh, what kind of books do you like to read? Oh, I don't read no books written by man. That's this group. I of Christ. They have their nose up in the air and they thought they were better than other members. They thought they had arrived. <laughs> Consequently, they saw no need to be committed to a church and under the authority and the discipline of the local assembly. You know, far too often we think of discipline as a bad thing. But for you parents here tonight, you know how good discipline is. If you don't discipline your children, they'll grow up to be monsters. And so we need the loving discipline of the Lord's church, which shapes us in Christian character. American Christianity is just absolutely plagued with these type of people. They want all the privileges and none of the responsibilities. They want the notoriety of having a ministry with no accountability to the Lord's church. They think they're the cream of the crop, but they're really the worst of the worst. And anyone who thinks they can live the Christian life and even be a minister of the gospel apart from the local church has not climbed the first rung of biblical maturity. I've said this many times in your presence. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We were saved into a family. We were placed into a body. And we desperately need one another. And so Paul is calling out these different groups in the Corinthian church who have divided themselves and made cliques of themselves according to these spiritual leaders. This is the specific way in which they were manifesting the greater problem of disunity. And so tonight I would echo the exhortation of the Apostle Paul. As the Lord is doing a work in our midst, and I really and truly believe that He is, let us take the stand now to avoid disunity, to avoid schism, to avoid those things which divide, and to strive to be blissfully united under the banner of Christ Jesus. As we close, I want to leave you with three specific applications. Three specific applications. Number one, you need a local church. You need one. You need to connect yourselves with a body of believers where you can grow in grace, serve the Lord, and worship Jesus Christ in the way that He has prescribed. And this involves more than just coming and hearing a sermon once a week. You need to fully commit yourself to the church. You need to pray for the church. And you need to love the church. And it might not necessarily be this church. I'm not jealous for where you serve. Well, yes, I am jealous for where you serve. I believe this is one of the best churches that the Lord has ever built. But if you say to me, Brother, I really and truly believe that I could better serve the Lord at another place, I will say, God bless you. Depart in peace. But you need a local church. Commit yourself to the body of Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
The second application, follow the spiritual leaders that God has placed in your church. Notice I said, follow the spiritual leaders that God has placed in your church, not on Facebook, not on Instagram, not on TV. As, as wonderful as those ministries are, and we can be so greatly blessed by them, you need flesh and blood in person, someone that can live with you, observe you, be with you, call you out when you're wrong, correct you when you need it, love on you, pray for you, and know you. You need that. Amen. And that's just something that the internet cannot provide. I post all of these sermons. They're all posted on our sermon audio page. But I don't pastor any of those people that listen to me online. I belong here in Paris, Tennessee. And God has given pastors to the church, not to lord over his heritage, but to shepherd his flock. Pastors should be a source of unity, not division. The last thing the Lord wants us to do is to divide into cliques based on who our favorite pastor is. And a godly man who is well learned in the scriptures and loves God's people is a gracious gift to the church. And you should follow your pastors as they follow Christ. I'll never ask you to follow me for the sake of being like me. When I am in sin, when I'm not following after Christ, what I ask of you is to hold me accountable and to rebuke me. But inasmuch as I follow Christ, follow me. Walk like me. Sound like me. Follow me as I follow Christ. And the third application, and perhaps the most important application, keep your eyes fixated upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Never let any man or any pastor or anything take the place of the headship of Jesus Christ. Pastors are given to lead the church, but they are not the head of the church. And if you have placed your hope in a mere man, you will certainly be disappointed. For all men have feet of clay. So this evening, let me point you to Christ. Let me point you to the one who never fails. Let me direct your attention to the one who never disappoints. Let me tell you of the one who always supplies the needs of his people. And if we are focused on Christ, unity will come naturally. A hundred pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to one another. And there's nothing more important for us to do as a young church than to focus ourselves upon Jesus Christ. If we don't have Christ, we don't have anything. But if we have Christ, we have everything we'll ever need, unity and solidarity included. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the blessing of your word. Father, we ask that you would grant us unity. Lord, let us not be divided amongst ourselves. Let us not have resentment towards one another, but let us be with a spirit of patience and humility, united one with another. Give Christ fellowship harmony this evening. Help us to serve you as you would have us to do for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.